I'm the head coach of Dortmund in, uh, in Augsburg, that's for sure. <laughs> Welcome to episode 187 of the Yellow Wall Pod. I'm your host Stefan Butzko and I'm joined by two guys for what will be probably a very turbulent episode as Borussia Dortmund beat Hoffenheim. But all the talk of course is about Thomas Tuchel and Aki Watzke. And uh, yeah, we will also preview the upcoming match against Augsburg. But before I announce my two colleagues on this panel tonight, I of course have to thank our patrons. Uh, who have pledged us some money. It's very nice of you. And the shout-out this week goes out to Lake Clayton, Joel Mefford, and Stefan Wolf. Thanks a lot for chipping in. And uh, yeah, with that, I can introduce now Konstantin Eckner from Spielverlagerung. Hello, Konstantin. How are you doing? Hello, Stefan. I'm good. Thanks. It's good to have you on and also good to have you on, Lars Polman from Bleacher Report. Hello, Lars. Hello, Stefan. Everything fine with you as well? Fine and peachy as always, Stefan. <laughs> All right then. So, um, yeah, before we turn our attention to Borussia Dortmund's 2-1 win over Hoffenheim, I suggest uh, we talk through the little news that came up today, I guess, and that is Roman Weidenfeller extended his contract until 2018, basically adding another year to uh, yeah his playing career and on Instagram he already said it will be his last year so uh, basically also announced that he will re retire in 2018 and the under-19 defeated VfL Wolfsburg 3-2 away to Wolfsburg in the semi-final playoff to the German under-19 Bundesliga title. Um, last a word on Weidenfeller's extension. Meh is the one word I would use. Uh, I can understand why they're doing this because he's been a good soldier, very important figure, obviously, in the locker room. But from a pure sporting perspective, I don't think he's done much this season, especially to warrant a contract extension. But I guess they didn't want to make a big deal out of possibly even their third goalkeeper next season because Weidenfeller in his statement today said that he wants to not only support Roman Birki as the number one goalkeeper, but also help groom a new guy or a young goalkeeper, which I found interesting because at the moment the third goalkeeper is Hendrik Bohnmann, uh, who used to play for the second team, has been relegated to the bench there and is going to be too old to play, uh, presumably too old to play for the under-23 team next season because they in the fourth division you can only play with, I think, three players over 23. And I would... Highly doubt that they will use one of those spots for a goalkeeper. So uh, Bonemann is likely on his way out. So the the question then becomes, do Dortmund use one of their younger goalkeepers as the third goalkeeper for the first team? Or do they indeed sign a new guy to become the backup, uh, at least when Weidenfeller does hang his cleats up? So uh, from that perspective, it was most interesting to me. But 
I'm pretty sure we're not going to see Weidenfeller get any significant games next season unless there are many important injuries, especially to Roman Bürki, of course. Konstantin, same question over to you. Do you think uh, might be that third goalkeeper that the the young goalkeeper Weidenfeller hinted at? Uh, who it would be? Yeah, just if you have a hunch. If, uh, not, if not, we'll just move I, on. Yeah, I don't really know. I mean, that's that's tough to predict actually, because it's 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 really hard for clubs to find a good number two. Um, usually, you know that like like someone like Berkeley is safe as number one. So, yeah, it's it's really an and task to to find someone and sell the idea that you will be the number two or number three. I mean, in in Weinfeller's case, of course, he's like. He's really at the end of his career, and and it doesn't really matter that he's now a number two. He, he basically, yeah, he accepted his fate, and so <laughs> I'm not I'm not too mad about, or I'm not mad about uh, extending his contract for one more year um, before they maybe will move on. I think uh, Berkey has done quite well, but the jury is still out there, and. You don't know if they will mix up things uh, going forward, maybe in 2018, uh, if they are not uh, 100% satisfied with what uh, Berkey achieves in the goal. I mean, he had good moments. He had a few bad moments. Maybe they, they see some other goalkeepers as a better solution uh, for the number one position uh, as the first, uh, first string goalkeeper. So... Maybe the, the the young gun guy is someone they will test. I don't know. We will just we will we have to move on and 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 uh, just wait and see who they will sign. All right. Before we move on, one question to last: Do you think that Weidenfeller will, after he retires, uh, basically assume a similar career, maybe as a goalkeeping coach like Teddy the Bear, or do you think he will, I don't know, just uh, disappear? From professional football for for once, I of course you haven't talked to him, but your your view. Well, Michel Zorc said in his statement uh, about the contract extension that the club will do everything they can to keep him around in some capacity. So I would assume that's going to happen. Uh, I mean, Weidenfeller saying he wants to help groom a young guy kind of tells you that he does envision working with players in his future and not necessarily being uh, like in marketing or a spokesperson or anything. I don't think he's uh, the the kind of uh, guy who would uh, sell uh, the club's ideas in a marketing capacity. So I think him being involved in coaching would, would make some sense. And, but I don't know if that's going to be with the, with the first team right away or with uh, Teddy Debeer, club legend still working as the goalkeeper coach, maybe Weidenfeller, goes through the youth ranks a bit, maybe uh, not necessarily only as a goalkeeper coach. Maybe he has interest in, in being a regular coach. That's always an option for uh, for a player who's done so well over so long. I think they're going to give him every opportunity to do whatever he feels like doing as long as he shows a talent for it. And obviously we can't really predict how that's going to be. Yeah, fair enough. And I guess with that, we can uh, move on to Borussia Dortmund beating Hoffenheim 2-1 and thus move back into third place. Konstantin, how important was this win? No, it was actually very important. Uh, just 
because uh, when, when you look at what uh, Borussia Dortmund wants to do uh, during the summer, uh, meaning that they want to go and tour, um, advertising, their club, going, I think going to China, right? Um, just imagine they would have been forced or would be forced to to go through the um, third, I think it's a third qualifying stage of Champions League. Um, all you have to do or you have to... Um, we schedule your, you know, your training camps. We schedule your tour, your advertising stuff, everything. Um, I think that, and 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 on the other hand, it's also very important for the club, just for the confidence of the club, uh, to get the, the, this uh, third place and being qualified to Champions League directly, not going through, um, you know, two matches against whoever against some club from the Netherlands or from Ukraine. Um, and not being, you know, 100% sure that you will go through. I mean, there, there were some clubs in the past, some really well-known clubs who, who were, you know, kicked out uh, because they lost, uh, because they weren't ready uh, that, that early uh, in the season. So, yeah, I think it's it's very important for the club to, to uh, that they won against Hoffenheim, of course. They can still lose uh, their place, can still lose one match, and Hoffenheim can still pick up six points and surpass Dortmund. But yeah, it's, it's of course a better position to go into the last two match days. Um, they beat Hoffenheim in a one-on-one situation. Of course, there was some controversy and we will talk about that. Yeah, we, we certainly will. And, uh, Lars, I would ask you about takeaways, but why don't we, uh, start with the controversy? Uh, Marco Reus scoring the goal, the opening goal in the fourth minute, if I'm not mistaken, and was from a clear offside position. A couple of minutes later, uh, he handled the ball and then won a penalty, which of course was missed by Aubameyang. But uh, how did you see Dortmund in those opening 15 minutes where they not only took the lead, but also looked the better side? Well, first of all, uh, there was nothing controversial about it because it's quite obvious that both of these huge calls were absolutely terribly wrong. Uh, the, the offside thing, I can't for my life understand how the, the refereeing team got it wrong because they certainly saw that the, the linesman must have seen Royce was, uh, a yard or two, too uh, far ahead. Well, the only, the only explanation I have for that said that Castro maybe the, the that, linesman yeah. didn't see Castro touching the ball but then uh, that's what the referee is for and I mean I, yeah, Felix Brich not seeing that Castro touched that ball that would be quite something but then again Felix Brich also thought it was a penalty for Dortmund two minutes later as you said so let's let's just assume he doesn't, didn't have his, his best day obviously he didn't um, as for how Dortmund set up uh, I was a little surprised to see them in the back three simply because they usually in big games only do that when Eric Dome is available and he wasn't for, I think, muscle issues. Um, but I think it worked pretty well. They mirrored, defensively mirrored uh, Hoffenheim's uh, selection, team selection, which Tuchel often does against pretty good opponents. And I think he was, I think what, what the lineup tells us is that he takes Hoffenheim very seriously. And obviously he should because they are playing a very good season. Um, and then I think the, the early goal was really the decisive moment of the match because it played so much into Dortmund's hand. They could allow themselves to sit relatively deep for their, uh, 
for their usual standards, they didn't have as much possession as usually they, not necessarily in the first 15 minutes, but certainly for the larger stretches of the match, they were very comfortable giving Hoffenheim most of the ball and defending both deep in, in a sense that they didn't press too high up the pitch, but also very relatively high up the pitch with their own back line. So uh, I think Hoffenheim were called offside 10 times. Probably seven or eight of those calls were correct. So that's still a very high number. I think 10 was the season high in the Bundesliga this season. So they were both brave with their last line of defense, but also set relatively deeply uh, with the rest of the team. So they didn't really allow Hoffenheim to get into the dangerous positions in the half spaces and the like. And I think for however much talk there was about the refereeing decisions, and obviously that was warranted for large parts, uh, Hoffenheim failed to have a single real goal-scoring opportunity in 90 minutes and scored through a somewhat questionable penalty themselves. So for, Aha, for, there's a controversy. For, for all the talk about how they were screwed by bad refereeing, I think Dortmund was still the much better side in, 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 on the balance of the 90 minutes. Yeah, certainly. I was also impressed with the approach of Dortmund since you could clearly see that it was very intentional to leave Hoffenheim with the greater of possession. I mean, they had, Dortmund had around 42% or 43, you know, given whoever uh, measures that and Hoffenheim around the 57 or 58 mark. Um, Konstantin, it was, of course, a match that came under a lot of scrutiny already before the game because there are two tactical minds facing each other. I think I've even read it that someone called it their Kochiko. <laughs> I'm not too sure about that, but uh, nevertheless, uh, you know, on paper, a very interesting game. However, you know, watching the game in the stadium, I thought it was interesting to some degree, but, uh, you know, it was also, uh, you could also see a lot of mistakes a lot of unforced errors. Uh, both teams before the game, both coaches talked about the pressure and who has more and who has less. Do you think that the pressure of playing for third place more or less uh, got to the heads of everyone down there? Maybe. Uh, could 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 have played a role. Um, but on your end, like, I would totally disagree that it was like the coachy co because we, we just, uh, you know, Lars mentioned it that uh, Dortmund's Man orientated defending approach. Um, that's, that was pretty dull. I mean, of course, I understand, like, uh, why Tuchel did it, but, uh, it made the match even duller. And, and on the other end, you got Hoffenheim, who, who didn't really know how to, uh, get through Dortmund's first, first two lines or yeah, so. You know, you know what's funny? You know, I, I thought it was more or less a mirror or basically a f reflection of Dortmund's scoreless draw against Cologne. Where Dortmund had so much possession in, in their uh, build-up line sure. in, in defense, and then you saw Zule, Vogt, and Hübner shoving the ball around for I don't know how many times at the back. Yeah, um, I can see that. Yeah, I can. I can see where I come from here. Um, what I what I just wanted to mention is that I you have to give a little credit to to Nagelsmann because in the second half he he tried a few a few things. He changed the shape of his team. Um, and when he, and when he did that, Hoffenheim looked much better. Um, How and they did had he more change the shape of his team? What, what were the differences? Uh, wait a second. Then I have to look up, uh, the official substitutions. 
uh, while I do that, I can t- just talk about his, his general approach. His general approach was that, that of, of, because Dortmund was defending so man orientated, um, when you change, of course, I mean, naturally, when you change the formation, um, y- you can, you normally get more space. Uh, and, but on the other hand, like when you w- just watch the first half of the match, um, you got two teams neutralizing each other and, not really showing much. I mean, of course, there was intensity, and there was, uh, and both coaches predicted uh, the formation of the other team. And yeah, I mean, of course, that's that's cool, but it's not a coaching coach. Uh, it's it's far from that. I guess when I, when I look it up, uh, what did he do? What was the yeah? He told you told you for Karabek, that was that changed nothing. But then uh, um, Amiri for Ud, and especially uh, Shawlai for Hübner. Um, then he, he basically, uh, changed the entire formation. Um, just because you get, you have to get rid of, you know, men of, of your men, of the men marking of the opponent. Um, which, which happens sometimes. Uh, it was more than just men orientated defending. Sometimes it was really men marking, uh, especially in midfield. Uh, so Nagelsmann tried something. Yeah. As we know, it didn't work out, um, in favor of Hoffenheim. Dortmund was a little bit lucky because of the Royce goal. Um, yeah, but at the end, uh, I guess at least the listeners uh, who are mostly Dortmund fans can be happy that, that they won. But uh, I just wanted to make the point that it wasn't really a coaching code because um, there were duels between two coaches uh, in the past, in the Wies past, uh, where I really could see how uh, these chess players can, you know... Um, Work with their players and work with their ideas and create something match uh, something yeah magical. <laughs> yeah, you just mentioned uh, Ud and Kaderabek and, and probably also uh, Demi Bay as, as players and we you know last asked what controversy but uh, I think that Hoffenheim were also lu- lucky in the sense that there could have been a couple of sending offs. So. Lars, would you would you agree that uh, Hoffenheim were lucky in in that sense, or do you do you think that uh, you know that's that's sometimes just how the coach dis- uh, the the referee decides like that he allows the game to go a little bit harder and tougher? Yeah, yeah, no, I think when you talk about those two players that could have been sent off, uh, Mark Ud after 14 minutes, I think he had two relatively harsh fouls that. Both yeah. in my book would have warranted a booking, uh, respectively. I don't know if, uh, he would have seen a second booking had he been booked for the first instance. And then Demir by uh, relatively late in the game, I would say after 75 or so minutes, he had two more or less tactical faults, I guess. But then you can also mention that Hoffenheim probably should have had a penalty in the first half when Socrates held on to Sandro Wagner for whatever reason, way beyond, uh, the final uh, way beyond the whistle if you like i mean he really grabbed his jersey for reason un- reasons unbeknownst to me because it didn't really make sense the ball wasn't in the area uh was really careless from socrates i would say and just generally i think uh, that hoffenheim certainly weren't the lucky party on saturday in terms of the refereeing decisions but again I think it's a bit too easy to say that they lost the game because of those. Then if we remember the first leg or the, the first meeting in December with the ridiculous sending off for Marco Reus. And the shove of Sandro Wagner on, was it Socrates? On, on or, Bender, or I think. Yeah, Bender. Uh, a goal that 
by all accounts shouldn't have stood uh, and Dortmund were a man down for about an hour or so of the game and they turned around and, and won a point and Hoffenheim certainly could have done the same. I mean, at least they didn't uh, have to play with 10 men for an hour or so on Saturday. So uh, as I said before, it's too easy. I mean, it's always too easy to point to just refereeing decisions, but also in this case with relatively severe refereeing mistakes, they still didn't really play that well. And I think Nagelsmann and a few others of Hoffenheim talked about how they were the better side. And I think that's, that's probably just, uh, talk for the talk for the for the public and i mean if they internally think they did, they had a great game without a single scoring opportunity from open play then then they're a lot less smart than they seem and i don't think that's the case yeah i totally agree with you um, constantine why in the end did hoffenheim not produce really uh, much of scoring opportunities i think they have f had five shots off t on target but most of them from outside of the box and uh, i don't really Remember that Birki was really forced to save. Yeah, there were a couple of shots from distance he had to dis diffuse, but otherwise I can't really recall anything too dangerous from TSG. Yeah, I think uh, it had mostly to do with Dortmund uh, cleverly closing down um, passing lanes, you know, shutting down a lot of options for Hoffenheim and just defending quite well, very well actually, Especially when we when we look back, uh, what Dortmund sometimes did this season uh, when they had to defend a little bit deeper, had to you know safe secure a result. Um, I guess it was yeah quite uh, quite the effort by Dortmund and at Hoffenheim. Normally, when you when you when you look at the, at this season on Nagelsmann, they they need some space. They they need some you know freedom to get something going. Um, that's why they are uh, most dangerous when um, the, the opponent is, is going forward, um, pressing high and, and then they got, and then they, you know, get behind first line and then they have uh, some, get some speed. Uh, that's when Hoffenheim is more dangerous than when they have to really build up and uh, one against the wall. And uh, that's what they had to do at the end of, uh, at the end of the match. And, Oh, uh, I, I guess that's not their strong suit, and you, you, you saw that. That's why they had a few shots, but as you mentioned, uh, all of them came from outside of the box. And yeah, that's that's giving credit to Dortmund. That just like in the uh, semi-finals of the German Cup against Bayern Munich, they they have evolved, they've matured um, in terms of you know securing a result, uh, being a little bit more. Um, effective uh, when it comes down to the last uh, defending something in the last 10 minutes and being deeper and not making these uh, crucial mistakes that will cause uh, conceding goals. Yeah, like the one night in Liverpool, for example. Last, uh, for instance. Yeah, last maybe your two cents on on that development, if you want to call it that. Uh, Dortmund seem to be a little bit more mature in the way they close out games. I mean. Kramaric scored in the 86th minute. I think it was a penalty, but after after that was more or less all Dortmund. And uh, yeah, I don't know if we want to single out players, but of course we do have to talk about uh, Sebastian Rode coming on for the final 10 minutes and being pretty well in what he did. Yeah, I'm I'm not entirely sure that this is really a development that we can praise. Um, I think for starters that. Even in their 
defending very well Dortmund were once again a bit lucky with some of the offside calls and I mean many of Hoffenheim's best situations were called offside and most of them obviously correctly but still that's that's a high risk you take uh, defending so bravely with their last line of defense and I guess we can uh, say that they but you can't fault Dortmund for the linesman getting most calls right no no but but as I said that that's that's something that can easily go wrong and I don't know if it's a development that they got it right most of the time in this game. I mean, uh, we can certainly say that they played more cleverly in the final 10, 15 minutes than they did in some of these games in the, uh, especially in the Bundesliga this season. Um, also in the, in the cup semi-final as Konstantin mentioned, but again, I'm not entirely sure that this is really a, clear-cut development we are seeing right now, whether that's not mostly just coincidence and, and you know, players having a good day in, uh, in comparison to the same players who've had some bad days before. I mean, you mentioned Sebastian Rode coming on and doing pretty well. He held up the the ball well. Uh, I was surprised to see him play very few backwards passes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... As the, everyone the, else. <laughs> yeah, the, the one player I think we have to single out, um, uh, even though he gave away the goal, if you like, with the penalty, even though I think it was a fairly soft one that didn't really fit what referee Felix Brisch had given before, uh, was Matthias Ginter. I think he was one of the two or three best players for Dortmund on the pitch, uh, in a very big game. And again, I don't know if that's a development or just a good day for him personally, but certainly notable from, from my view. Yeah, if we talk about defensive performances, I think we also have to highlight uh, Socrates and, in my view, also Castro, who, you know, had a lot of giveaways, but still more or less acted as the midfield enforcer. And I think it was quite important for Dortmund to, uh, yeah, win that battle in midfield. And uh, Castro got, I know it's going to sound very British now, but he got stuck in. <laughs> and in, in the game where you more or less, where your game plan is to let's, let's, uh, keep it broad where you more or less try to win ugly I think that was very important and uh, yeah props to Castro and, and of course Socrates always enjoys himself on such a day when it, things get a little bit more physical um, Constantine any performance you want to highlight maybe Weigel's or Royce or Aubameyang's in a negative way maybe um, no it was a team effort all right. <laughs> it actually was. It actually was. It was. Uh, Tobel's idea was okay. We uh, we need a goal, of course, but we also have to defend man against man, and that's most of the time a team effort. And when you when you watch the match, like off, you get you got your go ahead goal after four minutes, and then uh, you defend a lot. And so I guess it's, it was really something the entire team achieved, rather than particular players. But uh, talking about uh, team efforts and men uh, men defending, I think we haven't mentioned once uh, Usman Dembele's particular role in this game, and uh, he was man marking for much of his what was it 18 minutes on the pitch. Uh, Sebastian Rudi, uh, Bayern-born central midfielder of the Hoffenheim, who's really making them go in the second half of the season, one of the best players in the Bundesliga, I think we would all agree on and and he did really well in a role that he's not very accustomed to i mean obviously it's it's mostly running and 
keeping him in your cover shadow if nothing else but uh, I think still for Dembele a player who sometimes struggles in decision making and again did on on the attack in this game if you like but um, for him to have the tactical discipline and the diligence in his play to stick with Rudi at all times was certainly one of the, the keys to Dortmund's strong defensive performance and I think the problem with Dembele in this game was that the final ball was lacking so many didn't realize and I certainly didn't at first uh, watching the game you know for the first time in real time and I, I thought Dembele didn't have a great game but thinking about it a bit more and reading for example Tom Payne's analysis on Spielverlagerung of the game I think I realized that Dembele had a more important role than I gave him credit for and I think he did really well in it yeah you could you could see that in the in the game a little bit, but uh, I think the first time I actually realized it uh, was after I got mad that Dembele didn't close down Rudy enough. In a, I think it was a throw-in situation for Hoffenheim where he wasn't quick enough to mark Rudy and basically that was where the ball, ball came and I thought to myself, well, Dembele, if you would put a bit more attention to the game, you would have just marked Rudy. And uh, yeah given that this was his his job in in the game he overall did well but in that one situation where I really looked at it you know I I thought hmm Dembele could have done there a little bit better Um, but yeah Konstantin do you think uh, it's it's uh, I don't know surprising or anything to you that Tuchel sacrifices let's say his possession football or you know his uh, attacking approach for you know a solid defensive performance yeah maybe a little bit um to be honest because it was a home match uh because it was hoffenheim um which i'm i mentioned um that hoffenheim can be very effective uh when you you have a high press and they get behind that of course i mean it it didn't really happen against Dortmund, but still there's some kind of risk um and on the other hand you could you know control the ball most of the time uh which is also uh, you know a defensive tool. Um, yeah, I was I was surprised a little bit, quite 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 frankly. Yeah, but I guess positively surprised in, in that regard, since uh, you know it worked out quite well for Dortmund in the end. Uh, Actually, not, but okay. <laughs> I don't <laughs> just know. Put, put, they they, just, they just won put, the three put points. Just some words in my mouth. Just put some words in my mouth. No, I, I was I wasn't surprised uh, in a positive way. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you can look at the result and say, yeah, that that that's great, but. Um, it's not something Dortmund should do that often. Maybe against Hoffenheim, okay. Against Bayern, of course. But um, I, when I look at the Bundesliga teams and the, the opponents, that's about it, I guess. I mean, and well, it's really. I, I, I assume that Tuchel won't do that too often. <laughs> Anywho. Any anymore? Yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. In the remaining matches of his uh, still at Dortmund, yeah. Exactly. Which uh, you know if. If you read the newspapers nowadays, and I think we can segue into that whole interview uh, that Watzke gave and, and basically what kind of story that kicked off, um, that, yeah, it seems evident, or at least, uh, you know, you can could get the impression that Tuchel will leave Dortmund after the cup final. Um, Lars, you wrote an opinion piece on the Yellow Wall, which uh, was very popular among readers. So um, if you want to talk us through again why you think that uh, Tuchel or why it's inevitable more or less that Tuchel will leave at the end of the season. 
Well, I want to preface it by saying that I don't want Tuchel to leave. I think even though uh, he's shown some, let's call them weaknesses this season, or maybe some, maybe not the, the kind of development on the pitch that some of us maybe expected. Uh, I think he's still the best coach Dortmund can have at this point. Um, but the palpable tension between him and officials of the club and certainly Hans-Joachim Watzke as the chief executive of the club and probably the guy who calls the shots at the end of the day, uh, in my opinion, makes uh, an, a summer departure more or less a necessity. I think we've seen in the last few days, um, especially with the interview you mentioned and then also a an, a, an article of Freddy Röckenhaus, who uh, listeners probably know, is very close to Watzke, uh, close enough to for for people to assume that uh, he wouldn't have written an article like he did if he didn't have Watzke's permission or blessing or however you want to say. Which I mean, Röckenhaus's article basically read as a character assassination on Tuchel, um, painting a a dark picture of a person you can't work with in a club who is more or less a tyrant um, who even players don't appreciate working with anymore that was probably the most damning part that there were anonymous player quotes in that Rückenhaus article blaming Tuchel um, not only as a coach I mean that's always debatable I think Tuchel would agree that he didn't always make the best decisions this season but also blaming him uh, for his behavior on and uh, off the training pitch um, for and and I think the, the 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 most problematic thing for me is that there's now the assumption that Toro has used the last few weeks to position himself in the media following the uh, attack on the players on the team bus on April the 11th um, I think people are making it out like there couldn't have been a better thing happening to Tore than sitting on that damn bus and I think that's a really shame and, and and really quite ugly to say that about a person who survived a terror attack uh, on his own life uh, to assume that he used that to his own advantage to position himself in the media to paint a good picture of him in the media and I think that's certainly the way a guy like Watzke looks at it because otherwise it doesn't make sense for him to go public with uh, his own criticism of Tuchel right now with, I mean, the interview came out again before the Hoffenheim game. They had four of the most important games of the, seasons le of the season left at that stage and Watzke opened up Pandora's box and then certainly the, the Röckenhaus piece really blew the, the whole debate wide open and I don't want to talk too long, but uh, I think uh, it's beyond repair, the situation. I think there is uh, maybe a, a minuscule chance that they can resolve their issues, but in all likelihood, Thomas Tuchel is going to leave Dortmund after May 27th. Yeah, you mentioned a lot of things, and uh, there are a couple of points we more or less have to talk through, but uh, first, Konstantin... Um, How did you perceive Watzke authorizing that interview with Westdeutsche Allgemeine 
Zeitung, where he basically said that there is a dissent between the coach and and him. And uh, I think the interview was actually uh, made on Wednesday, but then authorized on Friday. And uh, everyone knows that Watzke is fully aware of the consequences and that this will be basically the talking point on match day. And uh, maybe while, while we're on that, maybe also already you can uh, yeah, tell your opinion about Tuchel not really... yeah talking about this interview but basically just saying uh talking talking to sky about about the thing that he wants to focus on the sport and uh yeah that these things are way too huge for a match day that's what Tuchel said so what do you think about Watzke placing this sort of interview so yeah narrowly ahead of a match day Oh, I don't have a problem with that, quite frankly. Uh, I I believe so, uh, some things that were written about Tuchel, I think that a lot of players, some players, uh, a portion of the team has a problem with him. So if there's a problem between the team and the coach, uh, it doesn't really, an uh, interview like that doesn't really affect the performance on on the pitch. Because uh, how how would it, like, uh, make it make uh, the relationship even worse? That's, that's, I guess, not possible. I mean, if I, I, I believe it's it's true because... Uh, there were similar stories in Mainz. Um, I guess Toro is, is like a football genius, but also a quite difficult character. Um, and Watzke's plan for quite some time has been that uh, they will part ways um, you know, after the season. So what, what happened after the terror attack was that uh, Toro was basically improving his uh, public position. Um, and that's why Watzke... I mean, Watzke just saw that he had to, sh to, you know, pull the trigger, uh, get a bullet in there, and, um, yeah, change the perception, the public perception, um, so that when, uh, Tuchel will, will be, f I mean, fired, so to say, but it's not really firing him, but, but you know what I mean, uh, after the season that, that, uh, Watzke won't be like the, the, oh, the uber bad guy. Uh, of course, to some fans, he will. And when you look at, at the reactions after uh, the interview came out, uh, the, the first reactions by fans and firms and everything, it was like, yeah, what, what's wrong with, with Watzke? And maybe Watzke should go, which is hilar hilarious, because show me three or four CEOs in Germany that can do the job Watzke does. You won't get any. Um, that's just the truth. I mean, it's, it's hard to find a, uh, to find a good coach, a good uh, coach as good as Tobel, but it's even harder to find a CEO uh, in, in the football business, uh, in Germany because, you know, you have to know the German laws and everything, uh, as good as Watzke. So, I mean, we, we, we talked in the past about some, some, some issues concerning Watzke that sometimes he did too many interviews and everything, but I think he even changed it a little bit in, in, in recent months that he wasn't that loudmouth. Uh, but coming back to the topic, um, what happened after the terror attack? The, the, the day after the terror attack was that that uh, Tuchel said uh, they, you know, they didn't talk to the team, and that basically the UEFA, that the, the federation, just you know decided that they have to, that they had to play. Um, which at the moment that came out, I, I was just wondering about it, or I was just confused because I, so, so nobody, the, the club wasn't involved in the decision. Yeah, that's that's not that's not true. The club is always involved in a decision like that that they that they will play the next day or that they will play the next week or something. So what what Tuchel said, and I don't know why he said it. I mean, I I don't accuse him of like uh, pulling this PR move. I'm just saying that what he said 
was not really was not really true. Uh, at at the same time, I, I don't say he was lying. Maybe he was affected by uh, the, the attack and everything. Maybe I, I don't know. Just just saying that that uh, what he said was not true. Uh, and Watzke confirmed that in the interview that he said, okay, uh, that that uh, wasn't what happened. Uh, then we we were in contact. We even uh, offered the team that they could withdraw from the competition. That that would wouldn't have been a problem uh, in, in the eyes of Watzke. I mean, if the players had said, yeah, we aren't able, uh, we, we aren't able to play after this attack. Um, just you know. Um, we lose the match and we, uh, we, we, we go out of the Champions League. Um, I mean, that was on the table. Uh, Watzko offered it. Um, and I believe him, actually. Um, uh, but of course, the players decided that we want to play still emotionally. Uh, you know, it was, it was, it was a weird and a very unique situation, of course. And uh, then you uh, just watched the, uh, Nobi Shai interview after the match. Um, but that being said, um, Tuchel, you know, the perception of Tuchel just changed in the last few weeks because he he just appeared to be far more like, I don't know, uh, like like something that Klopp uh, often was, you know, uh, a coach that is more than just uh, some tactical genius or everything, or just some guy who's who's uh, standing next to the drawing board and, and moving players around and, and doing some training exercises uh, yeah. during the week. Um, that he was some, uh, you know, that he was from a, from a human standpoint, just uh, from a, ca- a character standpoint, that he was someone who who was close to the team, who, yeah, who, who found the right words at press conferences. Something he he wasn't, he, he hadn't been able to do uh, in, in stints uh, during stints of his career. Um, so yeah, the perception changed, and Watzke saw that, and. He is someone who, who knows how the business works, uh, of course, years of experience, and that's why why he pulled the trigger. And the trigger was launching the interview with uh, the the local paper. Uh, what's and yeah, that's what happened. Um, at the end, they will part ways, and Dortmund will get a new coach. If it if it turns out to be a good move at the end, I don't know. Um, I'm I'm just you know I'm close to to Lars' opinion that uh, Torel is a is a very good coach, especially when you look at just the sporting aspect, nothing else. But on the other hand, if there are problems in the team, if if a portion of the team is not satisfied with them, or if they're, and I, I wouldn't use the word satisfied, but if uh, the relationship is uh, unrepairable, um, then of course you have to move on and find a new coach. Um, yeah, we will see. But I, I guess uh, the change that the total will be. Uh, BVB coach uh, next season is like below five percent or so. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if uh, you could put it in percent, but I would also agree that it's rather low at the moment, uh, given how how Vatska their yeah, places interview. I agree with you both. Um, Lars Konstantin just said that there was a bit of a yeah disagreement between Vatska um, Raubol and and. Uh, Tuchel basically because I think Robert said it later in an interview as well that uh, it wasn't just a text that Tuchel received but that there was basically an offer you know to to uh, yeah pull out of the whole game and uh, 
I, I think there was not just a text, but actually a phone call or something. So, uh, who is lying? And, um, yeah, who's lying? I don't know if it's really lying. I mean, uh, as Constantine said, maybe Tuchel was affected by what happened. Maybe it's more or less more of an under misunderstanding than someone just plain not telling the truth. Uh, maybe the versions of the people involved just differ in some aspects and we don't really know what the case really was. And I, I think, uh, the the problem for Watzke in all this is um, that it seemed as though he didn't care about the players and I think that's something he takes very seriously because he he really has Dortmund in his heart he's uh, done so much for the club and I think he often doesn't get the the kind of respect that he should get for basically saving the club uh, I mean most of the public attention certainly outside of Germany has always gone to Jürgen Klopp, but we have to f remember that Jürgen Klopp came three years after Dortmund were almost going bankrupt and it was Watzke and his people saving the club from bankruptcy. And I think that, he, that Watzke is a very proud man in that regard and that he felt really hurt by the insinuation that he didn't have uh, any mind for his players in, in that situation. Um, but I can also assume fairly confidently, I would say that uh, if this was the only problem between uh, the parties, the club and the, and the head coach, then we wouldn't be talking about a dismissal in the summer and the new guy coming in and all that. I think we would be talking about uh, a misunderstanding that, you know, they will talk out in private and then that would be that. But it's, it's on top of so much else that... Uh, some of it uh, I detailed in in the article you mentioned earlier, Stefan. I think it was the the tip of the iceberg, uh, or no, the 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 last straw, or however. I'm I'm not so good with my metaphors in English right now because it's making me really think uh, the the whole thing. Because I I really want Tuchel to say on one hand, but I can appreciate that the club seemed to know more about him than the public knew until a few days ago, even if some of the things in the Röckenhaus article seems rather disingenuous to me. Um, yeah, I, I mean, the, the, the rescheduling of the Monaco game certainly wasn't the, the biggest issue or the, 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 the singular event that kicked off, a, you know, the, 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 the end of Thomas Tuchel at Dortmund. I think it, it came on top of too many other things. And I, I mean, uh, I said in February that I think the chances of Tuchel returning are way below 50%. So it's not like uh, we needed this escalation. You mean extending? Uh, no, I, I think the, I, I said in February, I don't think Tuchel will be with the club in 2017, 2018 season. I didn't talk about it. I mean, extension was off the table. All right. <laughs> I mean, in his first year, I think we all agreed that he wouldn't extend his contract beyond the three years anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just such an unfortunate situation and such, I mean, the, the end we are all assuming is coming for the, the, the time of Tuchel at Dortmund. And I think it's just uh, a very sad and, and really nobody, 
nor none of the the leading figures uh, in this uh, working relationship really did too well uh, in the last few weeks if if all that is now in the open is really true so i mean i'm just more more and more sad the more i think about it actually well the the thing is that it's as you said rather un unlike dortmund that so much dirty laundry is aired in public um, we haven't really heard or seen that uh, for for quite a while, and usually you would rather, you know, connect stories like these with FC Hollywood in Bayern or you know the the blue neighbors in Gelsenkirchen who basically have unrest at the club every other year, and it hardly ever happens in Dortmund. So um, yeah, there's there seems to be a lot of things. I mean, uh, you know, there are just a couple of stories. Coming through, I have no idea whether they are genuine or not, but uh, there, of course, has been the story that Emre Moore had to run or walk on all four hands uh, as a punishment, uh, I think by by coaching assistant Schrei or something, like a disciplinary measure or something, and that apparently did not sit too well to the team. And, uh, yeah, apparently, I think Ruhnachrichten wrote something that... Uh, yeah, some eyeball, eyebrows were raised at the cup final last year when Nevin Zubotic uh, and uh, Physio and so on were weren't granted aces to the team hotel, and so and and uh, yeah, Yoho Park, and uh, yeah, basically that there are a couple of stories that uh, just yeah, as I said, raise eyebrows and basically dis- describe that Tuchel and his man management isn't always doing the best, but of course. I can't confirm those stories, so I don't know how much truth there is. But uh, yeah, you've heard, as as Lars already said, uh, from a couple of Mainz players too, that uh, Tuchel sometimes is more like a despot, like a dictator walking around. And uh, yeah, I can't really, I can't really say how bad it is or how worse it is. But um, what I can say is that there have been some negotiations led by Dortmund already with other coaches, uh, Lucien Favre at the top of the list uh, that has come through. So, um, Konstantin, if we look at replacements for Tuchel, which obviously seems to be the case now, uh, at who do we look at? Uh, which candidates? Yeah, which coaches might uh, replace so, Tuchel? Instead? Yeah, right. Uh, before, before I answer that, am I, am I allowed to make three short points? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, it's a podcast. I, you can do everything. <laughs> I, I knew. I knew you were saying that. Um, yeah. The first. The first one is that, uh, as it happens for the second time in his career uh, in Tuchel's career, that um, the club he's working for isn't too pleased with some of his man management. And as you mentioned, I mean, uh, it it doesn't help him uh, really as a coach. And as some clubs will, you know, think twice about. Um, Offering him uh, a contract or so um, in, the, in the future because, uh, of course, you look at the tech, uh, tactician um, Tuchel and that's you know something he, he does very well. Uh, but on your own, man, yeah, the clubs, and, if they want and, to and, sign Tuchel, they have connections to Dortmund. They will ask. Yeah, what's that's, going that's on what there. I wanted to say. That's what I wanted to say, right? Um, they will, you know, make a confidential phone call to to Watzke or to Heidel, who was the who was the sporting director of Mainz back in the day, um, and you know. 
a confidential phone call means they will speak about it and they, that uh, I, I think that uh, Watzke will be honest and will be, uh, you know, explain what really happened and what, what didn't happen, what, what was just in the papers. Uh, but yeah, it, it doesn't really help Tuchel. Um, and that's, you know, um, that's actually quite sad because he's a talented coach. But man, man management is may, at least 50% of your, you know, success is just man management. Um, and how you just communicate in, uh, within the club and with your players and everything. And uh, that's the second point. Um, I think what, what Tuchel also doesn't help is that uh, a lot of media members, a lot of um, you know members of the media, uh, newspaper writers, and and so on and so on, that they aren't really friends with Tuchel because he can be yeah, quite the a-hole sometimes <laughs> to these people. And yeah, and that's uh, that's something that bites him in the butt maybe. Uh, because uh, they are just too pleased to write something negative about him right now. Then you got something like Krakenhaus, someone like Krakenhaus, who's really close to Watzke. On top of that, but also there were a few writers, I guess, they were just happy to just, you know, now now's the time come, uh, now we can write something really negative about him. Because remember back then when he when we wanted an interview with him and he just you know turned it down and made some you know um, unnecessary comments or something, yeah. Well, we will we will remember, like we, the uh, members of the media, and not us included, of course. Um, and the third point is just that, uh, and that something Lars uh, also touched on, that I guess CEOs and sporting directors they they don't really get um, just the credit they deserve. Sometimes I think when 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 people, when a lot of fans, when they think about that club, they just think about the players and the coaches, and uh, not about someone like Watzke. Of course, you know the diehard Dortmund fans, they know about Watzke, but the international fans, they, they don't really know about him, and a lot of people who maybe are, you know, they, they are fans, but they don't really follow everything that's going on at the club. They don't really appreciate what a, what a CEO does, and I think sometimes that's that's not good in the football business because these people are so important and sometimes more important than your your left winger or your you know centre back or someone uh, or your under seventeen coach. And they are also important, but. People like Watzke, I think they are underappreciated sometimes. Uh, back to the to your question. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess Lucien Favre is the the number one candidate on the list on the short list. Um, yeah, other names that are, and I guess Lucien Favre would be a okay choice. I mean, he's also not quite the character. Uh, he's, I was he's gonna famous. say, you know, he's, he's he had his fallings out as Gladbach, you know. <laughs> But 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 he was always you know good to his uh, to his players. There was never um, a bad relationship between him and his players. It was always. And he knows how to uh, work with Marco Royce. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's 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 right. And with Dahoud, he was someone who was um, pushing the career of Dahoud when Dahoud was, of course, still a youth player. Um, but there's a big but actually. Uh, Fafer is famous for. Telling like the sporting director Abel back back at Gladbach uh, or just the officials in front office that oh yeah yeah I will resign if we don't sign uh, player X a player Y <laughs> that's what he does that's like his strategy and when when uh, Gladbach was struggling in, the, in his last season and they were losing the first six matches of the season he was telling them I will resign and and Gladbach was actually uh, saying no 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 you shouldn't re- resign we we want to keep you we don't want to fire you and Favre was the guy who quit. So, as I said, he's quite the character. Um, and it's interesting that after, you know, getting rid of, of Tuchel, which, who's also 
you know, the, not the easiest person, maybe, um, you want to sign Fafra. It's, it's interesting. But um, there's also a positive uh, regarding Fafra. Now he was at, at, at Nice, uh, you know, exceptional season. Um, and he's a French-speaking uh, Swiss man. And um, I think his name has some value in the Ligue 1. And the Lyon is one of the markets uh, Dortmund is very interested in because there are players they can sign for uh, not the highest prices. And, and they are talented, you know, Aubameyang, Dembele, uh, Guerrero. They are all coming from the, from the Lyon. So, uh, yeah, maybe he will, he will be helpful when they approach other uh, French players or players who are playing in the French league. And just looking at the shortlist, um, of course, Yellow Wallpot, we, we have all, this, all the sources and all the scoops. Um, <laughs> of course. Pa- Paolo Sosa, a former Dortmund player, is also into, in the consideration uh, in the, on the shortlist. Um, and David Wagner, David Wagner, the former uh, reserve coach. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's about it, right? <laughs> Um, don't don't trust any media that's reporting that uh, Cholo Simeone will maybe uh, sign for Dortmund. That's just so far from the truth that it isn't even funny anymore. Never say never in football. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wait, wait. Now, now, next year, you know, if you will sign for Dortmund, and then then there will be some listeners who find the tape of this episode. Yeah, and you will be select off as per usual after every Yellow Wallpot episode you're on. Um, sure. <laughs> no, but, um, yeah, Lars, your couple of cents, if you still have any to give away, um, on any coaching candidates. I mean, there's also Hannes Wolf in the mix, I think. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. The, the list will probably become more, yeah full with names as as we move along. I think there are still a couple of, of uh, weeks until the cup final and until the uh, divorce between Dortmund and Tuchel may or may not happen. And of course, the silly season already has sort of started. So um, any names you want to throw in there or any any uh, opinions you have on, on coaches you may want to see at the, at the coaching position in Dortmund or do not want to see? Well, I, before I talk about names, um, I just want a coach who's work, going to work with the team as it is. Uh, they went through such an upheaval last season that I think bringing in a coach with an entirely different philosophy, uh, would be quite difficult to manage just from a, uh, transfer perspective and also from, uh, a, a group, uh, dynamic perspective. I think they, if anything, they should look to uh, add maybe one more player. They have already signed Tupac in the hood, so maybe they can sign another right back slash right wing back if that position even exists under the next coach. But other than that, I, I I want to see someone who's going to work with the players they already have and someone who likes to work with young players would obviously be quite helpful because they have a lot of talented youngsters in the team. Um and and someone who can expand or at least bring the same level of competency uh, in terms of possession play just because the team's now set up in a way that doesn't really work you know playing clubs heavy metal football all the time or you know the the kind of 
uh, football you could probably expect from the both of the former coaches, presumably in the mix in Hannes Wolf and especially David Wagner. Um, I think f for one, Wagner has done a lot to gain a good reputation uh, at Huddersfield, but we shouldn't forget that it was almost just a year ago that Dortmund were quite happy to see him go after he failed to to impress at all with the team in the fourth division in Germany. So bringing him back after, I don't know, 16 months or so to coach the first team in the Champions League, uh, that would be quite a tough sell for me. So I think we can, I mean, I, I would hope we can exclude Wagner from this, from the discussion. Then I think, uh, Paulo Sosa is a smokescreen. I don't really understand why he's in the mix other than he played for Dortmund for one season, uh, 96, 97. I think there were just the people sitting somewhere and thinking of coach of names and, and trying to make a connection which could fit. You know, this seems to be like someone sitting at his de desk and thinking about yeah. it for like 15 minutes and then writing names down. Yeah, I mean... uh He did well with Basel, but then again, everyone does well with Basel because they're the Bayern of Switzerland. So uh, it's not too difficult to win trophies with them. And then with Fiorentina, he's done okay. I've seen some of his games, uh, nothing too overly convincing, uh, in my opinion. So uh, I think he's more or less a stroke screen. I think uh, Watzke really likes Favre. I think Favre was the only other option when uh, Klopp left in 2015. Um, don't know how realistic it was at the time. Don't know how realistic it is. it's this time simply because he's on the contract at Nice uh, going into the Champions League next season. So, I mean, that would be quite difficult or, or perhaps potentially could be difficult to pry him away from Nice. But if he can be persuaded to leave the club, I think he would be a solid option, not a great one, but I think there aren't any great ones out there in Dortmund's reach. Um, I mean, Not only isn't Cholo Simeone coming to Dortmund, but Jorge Sampaoli isn't either, or even Julian Nagelsmann uh, is very unlikely to leave Hoffenheim. So I think Favre would be the solid choice. And, and just one more name. Uh, so it's on record for for his next coaching job. I think uh, Michael Lautrup will be a fantastic coach wherever he goes next. I think the way his Swansea team played in with a very small budget for Premier League um, standards was really quite eye-opening and I just want to see him with a good team again somewhere in Europe. I think he's coaching in Dubai or Qatar or one of these Gulf states where football doesn't really doesn't really matter to anybody uh, outside of a few sheikhs who are paying the bills. So I, I just want to see Michael Laudrup in Europe again with a good team and if that happens to be Dortmund, I'll be very happy. All right, you're on record, and uh, yeah, yeah, I, I will be on record saying that uh, Peter Bosch would be a great coach. Man, that, that was my name. But yeah, not, not just because of his work at Ajax, but also because of his work at Vitesse. So, all, yeah. all right, I'm I'm out there. I sadly can't really say what he did at Vitesse. But how was he at Tel Aviv? I want to know that one. <laughs> Uh, that was weird, actually. I think we have, even on our, uh, the German edition of Schriefler, we have an analyst, uh, analytical piece, jeez, uh, of his work at, at Tel Aviv, if I remember correctly. <laughs> so, but it wasn't, uh. God, goddamn bunch of nerds you are. Yeah, yeah, but it wasn't too, uh, you know, wave making, so to say. 
Yeah, certainly. But uh, Lars, uh, of course, a good podcast host would have more or less established the uh, the guidelines for what sort of coach Dortmund have to look for before asking about names. So thanks for doing it anyway. <laughs> um, Konstantin, applying those guidelines, let's say that Dortmund more or less need a coach that, you know, can exercise possession football and that, you know, doesn't basically works with the team he has because there won't be another upheaval or at least there shouldn't be one. Um, you know, outside of the list of, of names we, we just heard, do you think, can you think of anyone you want to see there? Um, actually, no, not really. I mean, just considering coaches that are available and someone somewhat realistic that they would sign for Dortmund. Um, no, I, I, I guess Peter Bosch would be the best one. And then Lautrup, yeah, that, that, those two. Um, And, and Nagelsmann, although I think Bosch would be better, and then Lautrup, um, better than Nagelsmann. Nagelsmann's uh, approach is a bit different and not uh, too possession heavy. Um, yeah. So, it's, it's really up, but, but Farfer is someone, he's, he's really more, more the coach, uh, who focuses on, the, um, the defensive approach, who, uh, at Gladbach, I mean, one of the famous, Uh, features of Gladbach's, uh, system was that they, they let enter the opponents, uh, their own half and just waiting for them and then closing down all, all the space, uh, where they were, you know, standing right in front of their own penalty box. Um, I don't really know if that would work out well with, uh, the likes of Bartra and Ginter and, <laughs> you know, Piszczek <laughs> and so. I mean, you know, in a few matches, yeah, but, but, all the time, no, it not would really. It's not fit well with the fans, and you know, oh, yeah. when, when yeah. Dortmund upon a club, the narrative basically was that uh, they wanted at least someone who plays exciting football, if not successful football. In the end, right. of course, it turned out successfully, but uh, I think the uh, yeah, the focus there was basically on on showing some energetic football, and uh, yeah, basically. Making the fans happy in the way that you see a team fight and if you, if you right. play a, a Favre, let's say a very passive 4-4-2 system, that would be very much the opposite of what Dortmund intend to play on the field and it's probably very unlikely to happen, to happen. So, um, to conclude the whole discussion of you two guys and, and I would certainly agree that if Tuchel leaves on, in the sporting sense, uh, the likeliness of Tuchel leaving and then uh, the next coach not doing such a good job in the sporting sense at least uh yeah seems to be very high so that being said Constantine you just notified me that uh, you have to leave yeah so that would mean that Lars and I have to preview Augsburg that's right that's right I have another appointment I have to go to the Bayern Munich podcast <laughs> no no <laughs> not really but yeah <laughs> it just sounds good I guess <laughs> Uh, uh, I've what, signed. I've I've signed for a Bayern Munich podcast, just like every Dortmund guy does. You know, at one point. Of course. <laughs> Anywho, um, yeah, you can tell our listeners now where they can listen to said podcast and uh, where they can find you and your work on the internet. And then I guess Lars and I will just move on. Yeah, I, I don't know. I haven't launched the address, but <laughs> they will find out soon. Yeah, uh, people can find me on Twitter, uh, cc underscore ecknr. Uh, yeah, check out spiefelagerung.com and if you are, you know, 
if you can't comprehend German, then uh, check out spielverlangen.de. So I guess that's it for me, right? Vive la France! All right. Yeah, you can you can leave us uh, with a prediction for the Augsburg match, and then we will go into a short break and then come back with the Augsburg preview. Actually, I wanted to leave with Vive la France, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> uh, 2-0. Yeah, now you can say Vive la France, and then we are out of here. Vive la France! <laughs> And we are back. It's still Lars Polman and Stefan Mutzko, as you just heard before the break. Konstantin Egner had to depart. Like Tuchel, maybe. Uh, nevertheless, Thomas Tuchel said uh, on the uh, Dutch Fox, of course, that he knows that he still will be the uh, coach against Augsburg. Uh, answering whether he will be the coach of next season. So if that tells you something, I don't know. But uh yeah, last with having in mind that Thomas Tuchel still will be the coach for Dortmund against Augsburg. Um What kind of game can we expect? Augsburg, of course, 13th in the table, still very much so in the relegation scrap as they are just two points ahead of 16th placed Hamburg, who, uh, yeah, are on the relegation playoff spot right now. So, um, is this what we on the Yellow World Pod refer to as a trap game, a stumbling stone, or whatever you want to call it? Well, I think uh, the definition, whether it's uh, the Yellow World Pods or anyone else's uh, for trap game means that you're not aware of its potential pitfalls. And I think Dortmund will very much be aware that Augsburg are in a relegation battle and need points for survival. Um, I think it's relatively likely that Augsburg will need only three points from their two left, uh, two games left, uh, since Ingolstadt are very likely to get relegated, uh, probably on Saturday at Freiburg, who are very strong at home. So it's probably only a, about avoiding the playoff. Uh, for Augsburg but then again they play at home to Dortmund and then on the road at Hoffenheim so that's likely the toughest run in for any of the relegation battlers down there so um, I think Augsburg will presumably not be too aggressive in terms of forcing uh, a win at home just because one point can also be very important for them uh, and it's, I mean, Dortmund have so much quality that going for an, uh, for a, a home win with too much force could also backfire and lead to two or three counter-attacking goals for Dortmund and then the, the game is over. So I think Augsburg will be controlled, but obviously looking for a win. So, I mean... I haven't seen too much of Augsburg, but when I saw them, I, I was fairly impressed with what they're doing. I think I remember the first meeting fairly well. I think Augsburg did really well uh, at Westfalen Stadion in December. I think it one was, one draw. Yeah, it was one of the first games of uh, then interim coach who became permanent Manuel Baum. Uh, might have been the first one even. Um. So. Yeah, I, I mean, it's very difficult to predict, obviously, what's uh, going to happen to Dortmund until Saturday. I mean, in the current climate, uh, I wouldn't be too shocked for to see some new revelations, some new uh, problems arise from 
the media in in some capacity i mean i'm 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 fairly confident Tuchel is right that he will be the coach on saturday but uh, other than that i'm not going to make any big predictions for for dortmund and obviously we also uh, haven't heard i uh, haven't been told about training appearances this week i uh, haven't heard a press conference so we don't know who's going to be available so just generally speaking i'm not overly comfortable calling this game right now i mean we are uh, recording on a tuesday evening so it's it's a long way away the game against augsburg so i'm not entirely sure what to expect to be honest yeah same here <laughs> i mean we we thought we we said of the air already that this might yield in a very quick preview considering the little information we have at hand i mean augsburg probably very happy these days that they have finn bogerson back um he is their striker who was injured for most parts of their season and he grabbed the goal in Gladbach and uh, I think if it wasn't for a very late equalizer by Andre Hahn uh, who is a former Augsburg player um, yeah Augsburg actually would have come away with three points in Gladbach um, yeah still Daniel Bayer uh, in defensive midfield who more or less was the hipster's choice for uh, yeah one or two seasons but this season he hasn't played so well um, yeah otherwise if Dortmund have to watch out, it's uh, for shots from distance from uh, Staffelidis. I think uh, that's that's a thing Augsburg do quite well, is that when they counter that Staffelidis, their left back more or less moves to the inside and uh, waits for a shot from distance, maybe for a spill or, or yeah, a, a layoff or something, and then just yeah tries to score from distance. He did so I think against Leipzig it was where Augsburg played relatively well. And um, yeah, as you mentioned, Augsburg can be impressive at times where they look very yeah organized in defense, where they uh, have very good man marking scheme and where they, um, yeah, basically their, their defensive organization is very sharp in the, in the sense that, uh, you know, each player knows to cover which space or which other opponent and that there are no real holes in that defense. But the problem with teams that are struggling in the relegation zone is that they are not playing well all the times and that there are performances where they simply are horrendous and very, very uncreative and it's it's very, very tough to watch them. So I can't really say what will expect Dortmund on, on Saturday, um, but it probably will be you know from from experience it will be a rather scrappy game for Dortmund where they uh, probably won't have too many chances un unless uh, yeah they have an extraordinary day because i don't know i just i just think Augsburg will park the bus and look for counterattacks and try to stifle Dortmund in every possible sense so maybe Altin top will cover Weigel and and what not? I mean, they have some experience in there and some really good players, but then of course their individual quality won't, yeah, match Dortmund's. But you know, that's very obvious. So, Lars, um, you you said that you have no idea how how the training was, but um, Tuchel said that they more or less used the first week of training to give players a rest. If I'm 
correctly informed, they also took training off on Tuesday and Monday, and I think returned to training on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So that leaves them with three days in training. Do you think that um, after a match in Hoffenheim where you could still see the tiredness of some players, that uh, the overall uh, physical status of the team improves against Augsburg, that they just now know that they have to win three points and will be very much up to the task. Yeah, I think that is a fair assumption. Just, um, I mean, the the week leading up to the Hoffenheim game came on the back of a very stressful month of April, not only uh, in terms of the matches, but also obviously the the mental strain of the events on April the 11th, the bus attack. So I think they they needed this one week ahead of the Hoffenheim game just to calm down, uh, relax a bit, re rehabilitate uh, some of the, the smaller knocks and bumps and bruises that everybody has at this point in the season. Um, and, and now the second week can be more about building up uh, you know, a foundation for these last few weeks. Uh, obviously, they aren't going to do any uh, any crazy fitness work and they are not going to be running around the training pitch all the time. But certainly in these modern times, there are many things coaches can do to uh, introduce or reintroduce some freshness into the team and, and build up some much-needed energy levels for the last few games. Uh, I think some of the focus and training will also be devoted to the cup final already, not in a, you know, tactical sense. They are not going to be talking about Frankfurt, obviously, right now, because the, the other two games are far too important for that. But certainly with some of the players maybe coming back from injury or, or not having played too much recently, uh, after the, their respective injuries, someone like Sebastian Rode, André Schulde, who's back in running training, Mark Bartra, maybe even Nuri Shine in the in the next few days. Um, those guys will probably be built up for the cup final as much as uh, others will for this Saturday. So, um, I th I think the there are certainly going to be higher energy levels just with this being the second week in a row without a midweek fixture. But I don't know how much of a of an improvement they can can really uh, achieve, especially uh, with Augsburg presumably signing up to the same theory as Hoffenheim did, and in in that Dortmund can be knocked around a bit in the middle of the park, and I I can already see uh, the the first crunching challenge from Dominic Kor on Usman Dembele. The referee will wave on because Dembele is the boy who cried wolf, uh, and everybody flipping out on Twitter. So at least we have that to look forward to. Yeah, or you could just shut down Twitter and not be on that during the game. That's the other option. But yeah, I assume something similar will happen that uh, Augsburg will play a little bit on the rough side. I mean, what choice do they have? Dominico or more or less their midfield enforcer, as you said. Um, that's just something to maybe look forward to or not. I don't know if, if you're into that kind of thing, but... Uh, Yeah, should be should be a tough day in the office for some Dortmund midfielders. Uh, I wonder if he also will put his foot down on on Weigel or uh, yeah, I don't I don't even know who will play. So might be also Pulisic in there once again or I don't know. But it seems at least 
right now that that most players will be fit and that then there will probably not be too many surprises in the starting lineup for once but uh, you know who am i to predict starting 11 of thomas tuchel anywho um last i think we can just knock it on the head here because i think we're both out of things to say about augsburg um maybe uh yeah you want to look at the relegation scrap overall in the Bundesliga, which seems to be the uh, only interesting thing besides the race for Europe as the title race is decided. Who do you think will go down with now only two match days left to play? I think uh, Ingolstadt could uh, win both games and still go down uh, because they're on 30 points and the other teams are on 34. 34, 36, something like that. So I think Ingolstadt are pretty likely to go down, as I said before, might even happen on, on Saturday as they are on the road at Freiburg with, I think they are, or maybe they host Freiburg. I don't, I'm not entirely sure, but still Freiburg are a pretty good runner for recent weeks. Dispatched so easily of Schalke on, on the weekend in the hunt for a European spot themselves. So. That's a tough fixture, whether it's played for uh, Ingolstadt. And then uh, I think it, it would only be suitable if Hamburg were once again in the relegation playoff, uh, the place they're currently holding. They play, is it at Wolfsburg on the final match? So it might be at home, uh, certainly against Wolfsburg on the final match day. So that's mm. potentially will be a huge, huge game. Uh, between two teams. Yeah, but if we if we talk about Hamburg traditions, I think usually the one thing that has saved themselves so far is always a three-pointer very late against Schalke, and I think that's uh, who they play next, so maybe this will actually, maybe three points in Gelsenkirchen will help Hamburg get away from the relegation playoff spot for once, but for some reason I don't see Hamburg winning in Gelsenkirchen, although nothing is out of the... Uh, Ordinary with uh, Gelsenkirchen seasons right now. However, I yeah. I I think that uh, yeah it would be a little bit too much. But then again, Mainz play against Cologne and Frankfurt in their final two match days, and they're level on points with Hamburg. So I actually have a hunch that it will be Ingolstadt on 17th and then Mainz in the relegation playoff. And I was just seems sorry. I, I was just going to say that I think Mainz are f completely flying under the radar. Uh, in terms of the relegation battle, I think few people actually realize how deep in the, in, in things they are. Uh, I mean, I guess that's also quality of minds is that there isn't any unrest, uh, that there isn't a huge discussion about a late coaching change or whatever, that they are still quietly going about their business. But the fact is that they've been one of the worst teams in the Bundesliga in the second half of the season. I can't remember uh, one of the games I watched of them Uh, other than the late 1-1 against Dortmund where they were, you know, uh, even half decent. I mean, obviously I didn't watch all of their matches and I'm probably not doing them, uh, their, didn't their they justice. grab a point in Munich? <laughs> yeah, but, but that, but, that doesn't really yeah, say I did, much, I, does I, it? I didn't, didn't watch the game. Um, uh, just generally speaking, I think minds are completely flying under the radar because we are talking all about the, the underachievers in, in Wolfsburg and the serial relegation battlers in Hamburg and, and, you know, talked about Leverkusen before the weekend that they now seem to be safe. Um, so I think, as I said, minds flew under the radar and I could actually, as you said, see them 
in the relegation playoffs uh, spot. And that would be quite something because I think nobody in Mainz really expected to, to have such a, a bad season. And, and I think Hamburg would be huge favorites uh, against uh, Hannover or Braunschweig or whoever it's going to be from the second division because they have so much experience in the, in the relegation playoff uh, games. But I think Mainz would struggle much more. Uh, just because the entire season wasn't really uh, supposed to be this bad. I mean, the same can obviously be said for Hamburg, but they've at least been there before. The thing with the relegation playoff is that I believe that it will be um, Hannover who will face whoever will be on that spot in the Bundesliga. And I predict right now that Hannover will face Mainz in the relegation playoff. And I think that will, would be... I'm not too sure, but I think that would be pretty even. Um, Hanover and Braunschweig, of course, level of points right now, but, uh, Braun Braunschweig play against Bielefeld and, uh, Karlsruhe in the end. Bielefeld, of course, still involved in a relegation fight, but not really promising at all. Meanwhile, Karlsruhe already relegated, so, um, maybe Braunschweig, uh, just have the better run in while Hanover play against Tabletopper Stuttgart next and then, uh, Sandhausen which is of course a winnable game but uh, you know so i i have a hunch that uh, it could be hanover against mainz in the relegation playoff anywho Lars, uh, that should be enough with our talk about the uh, second division and uh, who is going down overall um how do you think the game between dortmund and augsburg will go down meaning what's your prediction for that game i'm being conservative i think we've been uh, fairly good with not predicting road wins for Dortmund this season, so I'm sticking with that and say it's going to be a dogged 1-1 draw. Alright, uh, I was very lucky to be correct for once with my housewife tip the last time. So was predicting... I, so was I. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but uh, you are right more often when it comes to, to predictions, so, uh, you know, I could just Enjoy this, but I, I have a hunch it, it will be, it will be the same this time again. So I'm sticking with the 2-1 prediction and, uh, yeah, maybe it will all go down to the wire against Bremen. Uh, maybe you want to predict that game between Hoffenheim and Bremen. Also a very interesting fixture. Uh, that is at Bremen, right? Yeah, it's at Bremen. 1-0 mm. Bremen. All right, that would uh, more or less make things perfect for Dortmund if they uh, beat Augsburg. I'm going to say 2-2. So, yeah, that would be all. Lars, where can people find you on the internet and read all your work? They can just follow me on Twitter at Lars Polman and I will select what I deem readable and, you know, send links to anyone who demands them via DM. I think that was the procedure we agreed to uh, on the last episode. I don't know with who you agreed to that, but fair enough. Uh, hereby, I withdraw the consent of you sending me DMs of links. Just so you know. Anyway, you can find me, if you're still listening to this, at Stefan Butzko. You can find the Yellow Wallpot on Twitter as well, at Yellow Wallpot. And so you can do that on Facebook, slash Yellow Wallpot. You can read our written stuff on yellowwallpot.com, where you can also find the contact form. 
if you want to get in touch with us and uh, on the Borussia Dortmund fans from around the world segment, which uh, will be back this week on Thursday with uh, Adam Dorowski. So you can look forward to that. And uh, that, of course, was made possible by our Patreon users, our patrons, who got us over the $100 mark. So thanks for that. If you want to chip in with some bucks, you can do that via uh, patreon.com slash the yellow wall. And uh, yeah, there are still some stadium cups to be purchased. So if you want to send the $15, you can do that as well. Anywho, that's all from us for this week. Goodbye.